Take a network break. Drew's on leave today, and I'm joined by a special guest host, Brad Casemore. We're going to be looking into the news and events of the past week where Cisco will be buying Splunk, Versa puts Sassy on a smart nick, and Terraform gets some tofu and more. But before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you about the first ever conference dedicated to network automation, which is Autocon. It's going to be held on November 13th and 14th in Denver, Colorado. You'll get to hear from network engineers making automation work in production and get insights from experts. And you can participate in working sessions where you can share your own experiences, ideas, ask questions. It's very much a peer-to-peer engineer-to-engineer type thing. So if you go and check out the agenda to see what's on tap for the two-day event and register at networkautomation.forum, that's network automation, just as it sounds, dot forum. Drew and Ethan will be there, so if you've ever wanted to catch up with them, you'd be able to go along and shake hands with them or tell them how much you're enjoying their company. And as always, if you like this show, The Network Break, don't forget there's lots of other podcasts on our network. Day to Cloud, Heavy Strategy, IPv6 Buzz is very popular right now. You can get lots of tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure and much, much more. Find them all over at packetpushes.net. And before we dive into the news, I just want to talk about some follow-up. I've got the following follow-up. Have listened to Network Break since it began. Wish you would stick to network topics and give less opinions outside that realm. The last two shows have done me in. Unsubscribing. So first of all, I wanted to say thanks for the negative feedback. It's valuable. Knowing that we're losing people is just as valuable as finding out what you want positively for the show. Now, what I did do is go back through the show notes for the first uh, 15 shows to review the content. And I didn't get the sense looking at the show notes that there was a lot of non-networking content in there, but there's certainly much more non-networking content than there used to be. And I think the short of it is that there's less networking to talk about these days. And let me just give you some ideas um, because I haven't discussed these in a while and I wanted to sort of remind you in the audience. So first of all, one of the things we're seeing is that SaaS products roll out features continuously. In the past, the vendor would work diligently and then suddenly it'd be version two, version three, or a new version of the code would come out after two or three years of nothing. And we would have like this major product launch and there'd be lots of marketing money being spent to get customer attention on these new features. Whereas now... We aren't seeing that. Products are, you know, SaaS just gets released, updates to code get released much more often than they used to be. And so things just sort of happen much more quietly. And I think another thing to think about too is that a lot of networking or new networking has slowed. In fact, technology broadly has slowed. We're sort of going through a bit of a... Not a slump, but there's definitely a slowdown after 10 years of really fast-paced change. And we aren't seeing large changes or entirely new products coming to market. Remember when SD-WAN burst onto the market and then it was software-defined campus and data center networking was going to be intent-driven, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, look at Wi-Fi, which now includes software tools that continuously monitor the RF spectrum and offer advice on things. So at the moment, uh, the whole industry is sort of running at a bit of a slower pace, excluding a few niche areas, high-performance compute, AI, multi-cloud networking. The vendors really aren't, you know, putting a lot of effort into innovating. They're just focusing on selling to customers instead of coming out with new stuff. Um, Brad, do you think that's reasonable? I know you're in this area. You've been an analyst over at IDC for far too long, I suspect, decades. Um, Do you agree with that sort of assessment? I do. I I definitely think you've seen a move. As you said, there's the SaaS business model now with network development, network software development. It's moved to more of a CICD sort of process, you know, workflow and that means, you know, features are developed and they appear, right? Uh, customers get them when they're ready, but you don't see those big .o announcements as we used to see in the past. And of course, there aren't as much, and you made a great point, there aren't as much sort of hardware-led announcements as being more software-driven now. And, uh, you know, the areas you mentioned, multi-cloud networking and some of the others are effectively overlay or software markets. So 
It, it makes perfect sense. Exactly what you've said. I, I, I believe this is, we're going to see more of well, this in the future. I think also a lot of new technology is targeted at the mega cloud use case. Like for yep. example, 800 gig ethernet has yep. almost no relevance to enterprise IT, excluding, you know, maybe they'll have a few racks where a HPC or an AI cluster runs. But I mean, and, and it's all very fun to talk about OOR technologies, but it's, that's not very relevant to the day-to-day when, you know, for example, I'm going to talk about Juniper here for a minute, who just announced a, a series of latest features in the Juniper Abstra product. They're still recommending 40 gig for a leaf spine architecture yeah. for their networking. So it's very difficult to get really excited about 8 gig Ethernet. At the same time, I think well, most enterprises have still just reached 10 gig to the server and 40 gig in the spines. And I try to find a balance there and try and dig for news in those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And And you probably noticed, right, there was the... 25 gig consortium and now we have the you know the 400 800 group that started up and and that, those are as you said entirely driven by the cloud giants you know they're 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 trying to get ahead of the standards bodies because they have an immediate need but as you said most enterprises aren't there and they won't be there for a significant amount of time so totally agreed also one other thing is that geopolitics actually plays a large role so I do try not to overdo the geopolitics, you know, the troubles with China, supply chain, you know, how all the sanctions that are going on are actually having a direct impact on now and the future development of products. So one of the things that we're seeing is because supply chains are changing around, production's being moved out of China quite often to places like the Philippines and Vietnam and to India. That is actually delaying new products because the vendors are expending resources to make those changes in their production processes. So I try and cover that so that you know um, and so that you're equipped when you're working with vendors, because what the vendors do is determined by what's going on around them. I just want to give you an example. Uh, Juniper Abstra this week had an announcement, and they uh, published a press release and, and an article on their site. And here's what they announced in this Juniper Abstra. A better automation experience with a new user interface and improvements, and also automated data center interconnect. It's got increased visibility with multi-vendor flow data and intent-based analytics, fast, reliable data center operations via Juniper Validate designs. Basically, what they're saying is they've released a bunch more Juniper validated designs for Appstra uh, because Appstra is very template driven. Very, uh, They want you to use it a certain way. You can use anybody's hardware, but you have to put it together in a particular way. So they published more designs for resellers and vendors to put it together. And then they say this one, which is right, whatever, simpler, more consistent cloud control with the ability to fold more third-party tools into a unified cloud managed framework. So it's very difficult to make a story out of that. <laughs> what do you think, Brett? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It's sort of a continual release of features and functionality through, you know, Appstra and other, you know, software-led vendors out there in the community or software-led products. And you're right. It sort of comes out in there and they release them when they're ready and customers need to be informed, right? But it's yeah. not like you say, you can't really build a core narrative around that because it's just an extension of what existed before. That's right. You know, enhanced telemetry. That's probably, if you're a customer of Appstra, that's a great news, right? Telemetry is probably really significant transmission in the operations. But all you can really talk about is enhanced telemetry and multi-vendor flow data. In other words, they've boosted up the flow importer to handle different vendors' flow formats which is great. And when I tried to dig into it, it just took so long to get through the manuals and find out what that meant that I actually had to abandon it and try and dig in. Probably the biggest part of that announcement is the integrated data center interconnect, which is where they use transparent VXLAN tunnel stitching. So now you can just go into Abstra, configure your VXLANs, and it will stitch them across the data centers. That, I think, is probably pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. It's all part of the 
ongoing simplification, right? I mean, there's a lot going on, as you said, under the covers, but they're trying to simplify it for the operators. And that's a great example. So I hope that explains uh, perhaps why we spend more time talking about adjacent topics to networking, not just networking. We also talk about the stuff that runs on top where it impacts networking. So for example, like AI, we're increasingly talking about AI because AI networking is going to be a big deal and you need to have some AI over time. So hopefully that helps out. Let's get on to the next piece of news. Uh, Versa Networks this week announced that it's put security features onto an Intel SmartNIC. So what they're calling it is SASE on a SmartNIC, which is kind of funny, but really what they're doing is they're taking the security software and their SASE engine and running it on an Intel SmartNIC. Uh, and they were at the Intel Innovation Conference this week. There was a whole bunch of things um, happening. But what they're doing is basically saying you can now just run the whole SAS thing on a SmartNIC and away you go. Runs on their VOS natively with a comprehensive stack. It's got all the features that you'd expect, firewall, carry grade NAT, DNS proxy, and includes the threat management capabilities, TLS proxying, malware protection, and then, of course, all the necessary functions to turn it into an SSE if you want to add that. goes off to a cloud security broker, DLP. I, I like this, Brad, but probably not for the reasons that I think, but I want to hear your ideas first. And we're seeing this more and more, right? I, I remember in the earlier days of the networking industry, you know, marketing was kind of always kind of held in check by the engineering department, but marketing is leading with a lot of these announcements. It's not to say there's not some useful functionality there, and I think you've covered it. But, you know, it is heavily about Versa re-emphasizing and, and really putting a spotlight on their SASE positioning, right? They've, they've kind of had that SASE positioning for a long time. Uh, I know they leaned into it pretty heavily. So it's not surprising to see them iterate on that on a marketing theme, right? I always saw Versa as really they lean into other people to sell their products. So they partner <laughs> with service providers and yep. some of the vendors took their products. I'm thinking of Riverbed, for example, went through a time when they took the Versa product and softened it as an SD-WAN in the earlier days. So I sort of think maybe by putting this onto a smart nick, they're getting close to Intel, who of course is very pleased to see people do things with their smart NICs because Intel's DPU is lagging a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it does show the power of DPU and smart NICs where you can run applications just on the smart NIC. But I do wonder if versus aiming to, to attack certain vertical markets and say, you can put SASE straight into your solution, Mr. Vertical Vendor, selling your accounting software or whatever, and just put a smart NIC in there and we'll take care of all that for you. So I could imagine like an IoT 5G, where you put something at the edge and then there's a SASE type solution just built into a solution for that type of capability. You're right. And I don't want to call them corner cases, but there are niche aspects of the SD-WAN market. This offering would probably be well suited for some of those use cases, I would agree. Another thing that's really interesting is that if you look at the way Versa has moved forward here relative to its SD-WAN counterparts in the marketplace, they've also worked closely with telcos, worked closely on the security use cases. One of the things we saw at IDC while I was there in the last two years was a lot of customers would tell us, I understand that you know, I want a combination of, if you call it SASE or, you know, edge security along with my networking capabilities. But, um, you know, I, I went with this one vendor and they're strong on the security side, but they're not really good at the routing or the networking side. Or, you know, they felt they had a vendor who was particularly good on the routing side, but not so good on the security side. I think versus trying to say, look, you know, we're not making a compromise. Now, whether the customer accepts that or not, it's up to the customer to make that decision. But, but I do think this is part of that positioning where, I actually saw a lot of vendors get taken, not taken out, but let's say um, they were demoted in certain accounts because they failed at one or the other, 
So this is this is this part of that story. Yeah. I think a lot of vendors, like there's certain companies out there that are very SD-WAN centric or very security centric and the networking suffers or, you know, although they add all the features, they're not focused on the full spectrum of solution. They might not own a CASB, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, we'll just go and use Zscaler or Cloudflare and call it done, right? And mm-hmm. then customers have to live through the pain of integrating the two, you know, they get a SASE solution, which has got all the inspection and external firewalling and then send the traffic off to a cloud hosted broker. I don't think that's where we should be in 2020. Or it's, it's, you know, I really feel like if you if you want to partner with somebody, those days are gone. I think it's much more you should have it all in house. I totally agree, and 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 you're right. It's one of those moments of cognitive dissonance where you think, uh, you know, it's almost at 2024, and we're talking about all of these intelligent machines kind of doing more and more human activity, and yet we still have to break up our our networking and our security and our SD WAN. It doesn't make sense. And also points out that uh, the SASE function needs almost no power if you can just run it on a smart nick i wonder what its performance is but appliances to run sassy don't need to be twenty thirty thousand dollar devices they can be five hundred to a thousand dollar smart nicks that's really all you need i think a lot of cases certain vendors have taken the opportunity for you know sd-wan sassy and said oh well it must be a router so this is five times better so we charge you five times as much and it really shouldn't be it should be cheaper yep it's not not all that hard all right the big news for this week was that cisco has announced a deal to acquire splunk for $28 billion, uh, as expected. And, you know, we talked about over the last two or three months, I think I mentioned several times that analysts, financial analysts have indicated that Cisco is a waning company. It hasn't made a major acquisition. It's got low growth. Shareholders and analysts have been calling for Cisco to resume growth and go and make a major acquisition. We've had rumors of active investors buying up stock just in the last month alone. And the Cisco share price notably is flat for over a decade. So basically at the top of the year 2000, Cisco share price ran up. But since then, it's been for practical purposes, basically flat. Cisco has acquired five companies in 2023. It stopped acquiring companies back in 2021 during the COVID times hasn't made any acquisitions until uh, February this year. And all five companies that it acquired are security companies. So Valtics and Lightspin, Armorblocks and Ort are all small companies that bring Cisco security up to par with its competitors. So Cisco's innovation model is to buy small companies and snap them on to its core. I think Splunk's a pretty good fit. Have you got some thoughts, Brad? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and I think you set it up well in terms of Wall Street was looking for Cisco to do more. They've been concerned that there aren't enough growth prospects. They've been concerned about margin defense. And the Splunk product fits, right? It helps them to grow in the security realm. It helps them to grow in using more data, the AI aspect, certainly a higher margin offering. There's a lot of shared customers out there between Splunk and Cisco. They've had a longstanding partnership. We know Cisco even took a run at Splunk in terms of an acquisition attempt previously. Had a couple. I believe it was rumored in 2020 and again, in was much more serious in 2022. Absolutely. So, you know, Cisco certainly, uh, maybe the passions were unrequited the first time, but uh, circumstances have changed and now it's all happening. It's not surprising in that respect, right? Because all the, all the pieces yeah. fit together. It's a stunning price, but then again, I think Splunk Splunk had uh, certainly developed in the interim, and Cisco's need certainly didn't wane. So uh, it, it's all come together. The financial analysts that I read say it's six times earnings in 2025. So Splunk is still growing. It's an incredibly profitable product. Lots of people joking about it's a money printing machine. 
There are definite strong opportunities. Splunk is primarily a SIEM technology today, so it's a security technology where people send all of their logs into it and then Splunk then mines that for security information. But that could also be used for other things. Cisco could potentially become a data analytics company based on the back of that engine that once you've got this infrastructure that's a massive data lake tool, you know, there's no reason you can't attempt to build a data analytics company in a range of other areas, you know, like uh, keep in mind that it has a range of companies in this space. I'm trying to think of like companies like AppDynamics, for example, which was user experience monitoring. It was uh, you embed that into your service and, you know, that's a much older acquisition. That's back around uh, 2017, which was the large acquisition, $3.7 billion. I don't think AppDynamics really shook the world since Cisco acquired it. And I note that uh, the financial analysts have observed that Cisco is going to end of life some of its products, the EXDR tool and some other things inside of the business they are going to be folded into others. And it does have overlaps with Thousand Eyes and IoT Control Center or the Jasper acquisition again from 2017 or 2012, something like that. So there is ability for people to do something with this, turning it around and growing the business. But I must say that most of the people that I've read sort of said, Cisco will buy it, leave it as a standalone business unit in the same way that Meraki and Thousand Eyes have been kept as standalone business units. And it will, you know, run that as a profit center and then do some cooperative selling between the different business units. I think that's the most likely outcome. They don't want to disrupt what is working. And and I think that's the most natural motion, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. So I would agree. And hmm. it's it's interesting, right? Because you, you want to be able to use all this data. And Splunk, of course, has a great franchise in leveraging data for you know outcomes and, and insight and visibility and observability. But you know, the I think the big thing for customers is that if Cisco is successful with the Splunk acquisition and taking it forward and and you know letting them do their own thing while while having a little more cross pollination with the Cisco products, mm-hmm. customers might benefit from having a more you know proactive and preventative posture when it comes to you know security events and security management yeah. and potentially network management. So, so I think you're right, but they're not going to. I would agree they don't want to be too ambitious and you know boil the ocean initially because they bought this company because it obviously has a customer base and they feel they can extend it. So it makes sense. Keep in mind too that companies like Palo Alto and Fortinet have really eaten Cisco's lunch in the security space. You know Palo Alto is now a seventy-five billion dollar company. Fortinet's a fifty billion dollar company. Um, really done a much better job than Cisco of growing their businesses and sort of highlighting that the acquisitions that Cisco has made haven't really moved the needle at all. So it would be good. Although I must note that the people in Twitter, when I sort of looked around to get some sort of personal answers, everybody was complaining about how expensive Splunk is. And I thought, well, clearly you don't do business with Cisco because then you'll understand what expensive is. So there's a good fit there, right? Going back to Wall Street, obviously they're going to say, look, you know, this is this is going to be part of our margin defense as well as uh, revenue growth. So, mm. yep. That's right. So just to give you some understanding, Cisco today is earning around $12.5 to $13 billion a quarter. This will add $4 billion in annual run rate revenue to its business, so about a billion dollars a quarter. So it does actually move the needle significantly, um, and it's actually funding it just out of cash flow and some debt. Got a whole bunch of links from a bunch of different sites about the acquisition. It's probably one of the major acquisitions to be announced this year. There are various people suggesting that this will open the gates for a range of mature startups, like mature non-core vendor startups. And of course, a lot of people will help that. I mean, financial analysts say things like that all the time. It's an interesting aspect to this because as we know, we're in what seems to be a high interest rate environment. It's going to continue for a while, which means that obviously, you know, tapping the banks for loans to make acquisitions for companies that don't have cash hoards like Cisco is, is a more 
daunting proposition. So this becomes, you know, I'm not saying customers should agonizingly review their vendor's balance sheets, but if you're looking at, you know, will my vendor be aggressive in terms of of targeting acquisitions, this becomes another thing that another figure, right? And another thing you have to calculate for, do they have the money to make an acquisition outright or do, or do they have to go to the capital markets and accept the interest rates and all the costs that accrue from that? Yeah. So he who has the cash wins. I think that the general perception was that Cisco spent two years not buying anything, building up a cash pile. We talked about uh, Cisco and Nutanix entering into a global partnership two or three weeks ago. And I said, it's a bit surprising they didn't buy them. It was much more expected that they would buy them. And I did speculate at the time that Dell might actually have a last right of refusal through a previous partnership or previous investments. But I'd say in this case, the reason that Cisco didn't buy Nutanix was it was about to splurge its money on Splunk. Splurge on Splunk, yes. Splurge on Splunk. <laughs> There's a title I should have gone with. I should have thought of that one. Uh, a couple of other things. Sentinel One was also in negotiations with Cisco, and Cisco decided not to. They must have decided to turn to Splunk for this, um, and we'll see what happens with the outcome. I think it's good for Cisco, good for Cisco customers, especially in the security space, because it means less vendors to do business with. So provided you're willing to pay Cisco's price, I think this is good for Cisco's customers. Moving on, uh, remember the Terraform fork where a group of people said after HashiCorp changed its licensing to a less open model that restricts other companies from exploiting the open source capability? Now, the body called Open Tofu is a group of people who have forked Terraform, established a working group within the Linux Foundation. Okay, so far so good. The question is whether this group has enough momentum to update the code base. I'm probably on the negative side of that. Whereabouts are you, Brett? You know, here's the thing. I, I think there are certain mainly, we'll call them digital native startups who are really anxious about this and wanted to move forward because, as you said, HashiCorp made the change to Terraform licensing away from open source licensing in August. But, you know, these organizations weren't buying Hashi, weren't, weren't buying HashiCorp Terraform. They were using the open source offering, the, the free open source offering. They still had a use for that. So they said, well, let's fork it so we can t- continue to use it. Well, it's still free. Yeah. Like Terraform's still free. It's just yeah. you can't take it and exploit it to make a profit off it. Exactly. Beyond us, it's, it's a business use license or something like that that they called it. Still free. Yeah, and that was Terraform's uh, gripe was that there were there were organizations that were uh, basically taking the, taking the offering and not really putting anything back in, right? They were calling them freeloaders in effect. Um, and they were saying, so we had to make this change. Uh, I, I, I think there's a there's enough support to keep this going. Will will they be able to make it? Will they be able to make it uh, um, agreeable or attractive to a broader enterprise market? I, I think probably not. There's a kind of select few who have the motivation and the means to take this oddly named offering, Open Tofu, forward. I t- I got to say, if you're trying to attract a corporate audience, calling it a name, Open Tofu, just isn't a good decision. <laughs> Like it's kind of fun, yeah. but it's kind of childish. And yeah. if I had to front up to my CIO at a you know at some very large business and say, "Oh yes, no, we're going to we're downloading Open Tofu," that's that's just not a good look. It's funny, but it's not serious. Yeah, yeah, it may, it may not play well in certain markets. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now that they've set up with the Linux Foundation, they've created a body. Keep in mind that the Linux Foundation will take anybody who wants to set up a, a foundation with them. Uh, the power here is that Linux Foundation gives you instant governance in a box. You can go there. They'll provide you with the structure, the legals, and the oversight, and the independent auditing, and all the stuff you need to get this sort of thing off the ground. But it doesn't 
actually provide any sort of support or funding to keep the project in business. That's up to the organisers of this new body to be able to do that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can get it out there. I'm, like I said, I just, I think the days of corporations, you know, willing to tolerate variations in multiple forks is pretty limited in 2023, 24. And I suspect that unless they can really get some major support from somebody, they're talking about having 19 developers at this time in their show notes. I'm dubious. Yeah, there'll, there'll be some very proficient folks in there. But I, again, I don't think it'll ever be amenable to broader enterprise requirements. I think the enterprises will just stick with Terraform. Yep. Yep. Sean. So we'll see. And in the meantime, HashiCorp is making you know constant releases on tools, not so much to Terraform, but on the tools around it, which is what enterprises usually want. So I think that's what I'm looking for. Uh, moving on to the next topic, VMware's Broadcom deal has China delays. Uh, it was announced this week that the China regulators have paused their approval processes. Then it was announced that it's continued. Then it was announced that it looked like they'd be able to mitigate. You know, this is all rumours. There's been no official announcements, but it's believed that Broadcom will be able to seek various remedies to be able to put it in place. I think the joke that I've made a while ago is that it ain't over until the fat lady sings. These deals do tend to invoke this sort of stuff, and the VMware Broadcom deal is huge. It is a $68 billion deal at the end of the day, and all of the governments around the world have put their fingers in that particular little pie. Notably, Cisco's acquisition of Splunk actually notes there is no requirement to get approval from China, which, again, geopolitics at work. To your point earlier, Greg, there's no avoiding geopolitics in, in certain areas of the industry now, and this is a perfect example. I mean, any acquisition that has to go through China is potentially at risk now due to the geopolitical tensions. And you're right, Cisco very explicitly said, don't worry about the Splunk acquisition because we don't have to go through China approvals. That suggests to me that we may see more acquisitions of that type and fewer of the type that need to go through China. The window for making major acquisitions is closing. Arm managed to get their float away, even though the Chinese operation is very questionable. Apparently, the Arm business in China is completely captive to a local operator, and Arm no longer has any control over the local business at all. And I'm always surprised that it managed to get that through the stock exchange, but apparently the rest of the business is still worth it. But I think VMware and Broadcom, the deal will be done on balance, I don't think. But I think China is just looking for various remedies and saying you have to do various things. It has to be said that Broadcom is very much an Asian company. It used to be uh, domiciled in Hong Kong before it was re-headquartered to America uh, back in like five years ago when it wanted to uh, take over Qualcomm. And the US government said you have to move to the US to be able to make this bid. The deal didn't go through in the end because the, the stock market changed and so Broadcom did pull out. So I think Broadcom still has very a lot of operations in China particularly and Asia generally. Uh, of course, Broadcom is a major manufacturer of chips in, in China. So maybe they want, China is seeking to get some sort of leverage over Broadcom with Roland to this. Our final piece of news for this week is Backbox and Paisler announced a partnership. The reason that I pulled this out is that what we're seeing a couple of times here, and I know that a few days ago I pulled out another one of these announcements where smaller companies are getting together to build these partnerships to look bigger. And it's interesting that we're starting to see more of these. Now, of course, Backbox um, is a multi-vendor network automation platform, so it 
does your network operations and empowers NetOps with diagnostics and remediation to span multiple device types and multiple platforms and multiple software. You can talk northbound. You can use Backbox as a driver, talk from another platform, or you can put Backbox on top of your ACI NSX if that's the way that you choose to go. Whereas Paceler is very much in the monitoring and visibility business. It really just focuses on that. And both are smaller companies focused on a specific niche that actually complements each other. So I think that's that's an interesting thing to see emerging in the market. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because here the fit is great. I mean, it looks great on paper. It, it makes tremendous sense for these two or two companies, small companies, to pursue a partnership. I see the motivation. I see the fit. You know, the execution at scale might be a problem, but this could also be a great kind of test runner prologue to to finding out if uh, Pessler wants to pursue an acquisition, right? So it's it, it 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 works in a number of different ways. And you're right; it helps to compensate for you know the smallness of the two companies to be able to combine their efforts and create a product that has a greater reach in the marketplace. I would imagine we're going to see a lot more of this. As we said, the economic model is not such that you can necessarily go to the markets and well, get more money. What strikes me is the cost of sales has gone up. Once upon a time, yep. selling was just a cost of doing business. And what a lot of companies are going is, it actually costs a lot of money to sell my product. What can I do to reduce the cost of selling? Um, you know, of reaching customers and getting deals done. And I think these partnerships are recognition of the fact that that's the way it's got to go, especially as like a lot of these companies are all hosted on cloud services and the cost of being on somebody else's cloud is killing them, right? Mm -hmm. They really don't have the money that they used to, to be able to say, all right, we're going to go on a sales push. We're going to drop, you know, 50 million and hiring a bunch of salespeople and we're going to give away more of our commissions and stuff like that, which actually has a, a direct impact on the bottom line. I think we're going to see much more of this. I think it's also interesting if you were around 10 years ago, we talked a lot about unbundling and disaggregation. And what's also notable here is that any period of disaggregation tends to be followed by aggregation later. So once you unbundle everything, if you think back to we unbundled the hardware and the software, and now we have Broadcom ASICs with the vendors putting their software on top as well as, you know, there's a whole bundling, rebundling or aggregation, disaggregation, just it's a cycle. And I wonder if this is the same sort of thing. Are we seeing a situation where you can have automation, but automation without visibility is no longer a an unbundled product. It's got to be bundled together. And so I'm looking at this in the eye of some things need to be aggregated. Most of the automation platforms need visibility to be able to prove that the automation worked. And maybe this is where you'll look, as you say, these two companies potentially should merge in time to come. Yeah. And, and that sort of disaggregation and integration or aggregation is kind of like a, the trade-off between choice and, and simplicity, right? Oh, I want lots of choice. I want lots of choice. I want options. And of course, you know, they get options and they say, well, this is getting difficult to manage. <laughs> Can you make this simpler? <laughs> All right. Well, that seems to be the news for this week. Brad, uh, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you're doing, where can they find you? As many people do, I have a blog. It's called Crepuscular Circus at ghost.io. And of course, you can find me on Twitter, uh, still or X, as they call it these days. Um, I, I kind of hate that X, but I guess there's no going back now. It's at uh, Brad Casemore on on Twitter. Or I see people yeah, calling it Zitter, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is probably where I'm going to be eventually. I still just call it Twitter because I'm just can't be bothered really changing it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I feel silly saying X. It feels like a gentleman's club yeah. in Atlanta in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, well, congratulations on your retirement or faux retirement at this point. I think you're. It is a full it. retirement. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully we'll see more of you. As always, you can follow me. I'm Greg Farrow. I'm on uh, Zitter as Ethereal Mind, but doing more and more on LinkedIn as time goes by. Thanks very much for joining us today for another episode of the Network Break. If you enjoy the show, please like us on Facebook. You leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. It would be very helpful if you could do that. Share a link with your colleagues. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again next week.